welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and miniseries. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Nate answers questions from your emails, which leads to a broad-ranging monologue on genre, instruments, and what dead artist he'd bring back to play his birthday party. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and once again, I'm alone at my station. This time, it's not a seance. Instead, I'm going to answer some questions from reader mail. So this is the first time doing this, and and uh, I thought we got a good range of questions. Picked Steph picked the questions, picked a pretty broad range of what I would consider basic questions, but I think it answers some big questions um, that I'd like to get to. So the first one was... What do you think is the most important era of music over the last 100 years? I would cheat and say over the last 120 or 130 years. Um, And I wouldn't say that there's one genre that's been the most important thing, but clearly the most important development. And I think this is just a hands down, no brainer, absolutely factually the case. I will fight you over this. The big story of music in the 20th century was the transition of dominance from European symphonic, what we call classical music, but classical music is just a subset of the European symphonic or concert tradition, including opera, concertos, string quartets, stuff like that, not just symphony orchestras, but that whole tradition being superseded and rapidly after World War I. I mean, it's like Europe essentially killed itself with World War One, put the capper in it with World War Two, and from basically 1917 on, it was African American pop in its various forms that dominated the world's music. That was the most exciting, most um, influential, most popular most creative. I mean, look at the genres that spun off. I mean, starting with minstrelsy in the 19th century, then ragtime, jazz and blues, uh, country music, which is definitely an African-American form. It's not dominantly African-American. I think it's a a mix of Anglo-Celtic and African influences that make country. But I would say that blues isn't purely african either it's african-american because it's sung in english it uses chords that came from europe it's you know it's these amalgamations but there's no doubt that the secret ingredient the dominant ingredient was these influences coming from africa which were totally new to people from europe although there was a lot of commonalities i mean you know you find a lot of the celtic music a lot of the uh, eastern european uh, roma and klezmer jewish music that that have a lot in common with African music, and a lot of that, as we've discussed with Ned Sublet, is because there was communication going back and forth across the Mediterranean the whole time, going way back. But then, you know, then you've got swing, uh, which I, I view as a very different form. This is the moment when jazz was absolutely at the peak, when it is the dominant pop form, when it's the dominant dance form and when it's becoming the dominant art form of music so swing to me is a really undersung era and absolutely important but it's really just part of this this longer tradition and another element of that is the latin slash mambo tradition i mean it's easy to overlook how many times latin music has either 
swept the United States and much of the globe or been a powerful and steady undercurrent. You know, things like Canuto here in Texas or Norteño, Tejano, all these different forms. They're just there in Texas my whole life. And uh, you couldn't get away from them. Part of the conversation, part of the music, you find yourself going out dancing and, hey, here come the accordions and and, and the songs in Spanish. And, and, you know, let's get some cervezas and have a good time. That's just part of it. But sometimes... You know, like with the peanut vendor of the 1930s or the mambo craze that dominated the New York dance scene in the 40s, 50s, 60s, salsa in the 70s. This has been a big part of American music. And it's also the most connected to African music of any of these forms, which is kind of funny since we associate it with Latin Americans and mestizos and people of mixed Spanish and indigenous descent. But African uh, Americans were a mix of that. And I mean, African American in the sense of North and South Americans, but members of the African diaspora definitely contributed. And they brought the rhythms that those peoples have been obsessed with and playing with. The, the Congolese sub-Saharan African mastery of rhythm is quantifiably an intellectual accomplishment, absolutely equal to what Bach did with the well-tempered clavier and, and the European harmony system. They were just fascinated with rhythm rather than harmony, different aspect of music. And because more of uh, enslaved peoples were brought to Cuba, Brazil, et cetera, than were brought to North America, and because in North America we didn't let them have drums, those rhythms were best preserved in in what we call Latin music, which is a fascinating misnomer. But then you've got the R&B wave where Louis Jordan goes straight from swing. I mean, straight from Chick Webb's band to inventing what we call rhythm and blues, which becomes rock and roll, which to me, and I've talked about this in the past, this is where, you know, I think a lot of boomer music historians got it wrong and saw swing as not, you know, they saw blues and country as the direct antecedents to rock and roll. I totally disagree with that. I think blues and country were influences, but swing was the dominant branch that they evolved from. And case closed, Louis Jordan was a swing guy. Louis Jordan's the king of R&B. Everybody agrees R&B um, is the, the direct forefather of rock and roll. You know, you got to mention gospel, though, which, you know, uh, Sister Loretta Tharp and others were really undersung influences on rock and roll as well. And gospel is this whole tradition that then uh, combines deep African roots with deep English Christian roots and creates this whole new form that's running in parallel to these things and goes on to influence soul and, and rock in a big way. And then you've got rock and roll, which there's two phases of rock and roll. There's the Winoni Harris, Roy Brown, early 50s, late 40s, early 50s era that supersedes Louis Jordan before it is in turn superseded by a new generation led by Elvis Presley and Little Richard and Fats Domino and Chuck Berry and others. Then you've um, got jazz's movement into an art music w away from the dance floor. So the creation of bebop is, is this a big deal when jazz becomes – I mean, goes for the throne of classical music as this is the great art music of the period. And I think jazz, at least from the 1940s to the 1970s, kicked the shit out of classical music. I mean, you cannot tell me people are going to be listening to, to Webern or serial music or 12-tone music in the future and Miles Davis and John Coltrane are going to be forgotten. Give me a break. There's 0% chance of that happening. John Coltrane is the American Beethoven, period, case closed. Jazz won that fight. Of course, they lost in doing that. They surrendered their title as, as the leading dance music to first rock and roll and then soul and then heavy rock uh, and funk in the late 60s. Even jazz fusion was a big part of of the the story jazz fusion really undersung there was a systematic plot to diminish jazz fusion as a factor but it was very popular music very influential music very much art music but it was also back on the dance floors then you get the whole you get the birth of the turntable musics which hip-hop is one of the two dominant chains and then disco is the other side but those are twins they came out of the same places or the same city 
which is slightly different techniques. But, you know, then disco involves evolves into electronic music, you know, Donna Summer, et cetera. Then the whole house music, techno music, acid house, jungle, drums and bass, yada, yada, yada. So that's that's the story of the 20th century is African-Americans taking over from Europeans and dominating the world musical conversation. And so that's that's the answer to that. And let's hear our first track. And this is one of the most important records of the 20th century. This is Mamie Smith crazy blues Mamie was not a blues person she was a vaudeville performer and the song technically i can't remember if it's a blues or not um but the point is this was the first record by an african-american performer to sell mega units in the united states and it changed the whole game there had been a few african-american performers who got to record before that i'm thinking of the great vaudevillian burt williams um James Reese Europe and a few others, but it wasn't until Mamie Smith proved that black folks could sell records in quantity to black people enough to get the business attention and then blow up and sell a lot of records to white people that people really paid attention. This is Mamie Smith, Crazy Blues. Crazy Blues by Mamie Smith, which to me is as much jazz as, as it is blues. If, if, if you look at the history of music in the 1920s and try to keep a perspective of how it was seen in the 1920s, jazz was anything that had horns and drums and was fast and had an African-American influence and... Uh, and sometimes that was hidden. You know, there were plenty of white bands that were playing jazz to totally white audiences that that were pretty clueless as to as to what quote unquote real jazz was. But nonetheless, you know, Louis Armstrong would play on on records by Bessie Smith and uh, Ma Rainey, you know, was backed up by Thomas A. Dorsey, who goes on to become, you know, first the founder of um, the hokum blues style, and then the father of gospel. And so all this stuff is is a gumbo and it hadn't been separated out. It wasn't it wasn't segregated amongst itself. The the, the critics hadn't had time to tear it apart and, and redefine it. In the twenties, jazz, blues, and what we would think of as Broadway pop, like songs by Irving Berlin, George Gershwin, etc., were all were all mixed in together as one exciting new fun genre. Um, and so, th- there's that. And then so, so one question. I talked for 20 minutes. Well, um, the next question is: What genre of music made the most impact in the last 100 years? And I've already said that, you know, it's the meta genre of African-American pop that that's absolutely hands down the dominant music and most important historically music of the 20th century. And that includes all kinds of stuff. Um, you know, the Beatles, I would include in that tradition. Frank Sinatra, I would include in that tradition, et cetera. So it's not just perform and perform when it's performed by black, but it's that tradition. You know, Frank Sinatra was not coming out of, I mean, he talked about being influenced by bel canto music and opera, and and he was, you know, and so was Bing Crosby, and country music was influenced by opera, and black music was influenced by opera. Uh, somebody like Screaming Jay Hawkins was an operatic trained singer. There was a lot of that, you know, cross-pollinating and mixing and mongrelizing. That's what, what this is all about. But I would say that the two genres of music out of those out of that big meta genre, the, the two genres of music that had the most impact in the last hundred years were jazz and then rock. Um, they both had about 30 to 50 year runs where they went from being initially the radical, crazy records for kids that old people were shocked and horrified by. They became the dominant dance form very quickly then um, gradually became the dominant pop form and then became the dominant art music form. 
And it's a cycle. Once you become the dominant art music form, you're pretty much done. <laughs> Ironically, when once you produce John Coltrane, um, you know, or 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 the Beatles or Stevie Wonder, you're over. I mean, you know, you're not gonna, you're not gonna, you're not gonna surpass that and the sacrifices that you make to become a sit down and listen music rather than a stand up and dance. Stevie Wonder's kind of a misnomer in that. I would, um, but somebody like. Well, yeah, I mean, black folks have kept kept their connection to the dance floor much better. But somebody like Miles Davis is an example of somebody who was quite popular. I mean, he sold he sold a lot of records, but kind of a band, definitely a band of the dance floor in the first half of his career. And the second half of his career is him trying to regain the dance floor, never quite succeeding, but still making a lot of records and many popular concert appearances that did impact the dance music of their day. Very, very popular while staying Miles Davis, the great art musician. So the next question is what genre do you think has staying power? And I'd say none of them. Um, you know, some of them have longer staying powers than others, but they all pretty much go through this cycle. If, if they become a dominant form and, you know, they come, they go, they influence, they influence, they dominate a few generations and then they age out. And, and typically once a music form has been institutionalized, it's over. Ted Joya has really uh, documented that to my satisfaction, that there's this constant battle between uh, outsiders and, and the academy, as it were. And once you get something like jazz at Lincoln Center, the party is over. Like once the institutions have taken over, once you've got the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, then you've got people like Jan Winter making the decisions rather than people like James Brown or Barry Gordy. And, you know, <laughs> there's no comparison in what Jan Winter had to offer compared to what Barry Gordy or James Brown or Aretha Franklin uh, had to contribute uh, to the music. And so, um, next question, what is your personal favorite era and why I'm absolutely a sixties guy. I, I, you know, I loved eighties music growing up. Um, but even then I was focused on the, on the sixties, I love seventies music when I was a little kid, but, but sixties music always had a pull to me. The Beatles were always a special favorite. And then later on the stones and the kinks, uh, became big favorites. And then, you know, then I added Dylan and then I discovered Motown and then I discovered, you know, Aretha Franklin and, uh, psychedelic rock, et cetera, et cetera. And because, you know, 1969 was the year of my birth and I was, orphaned you know my dad was dead before i was born i was always fascinated with that era that my dad had lived in and 1968 in particular was this hinge year in history i mean there was this to me i, I see the 60s as this period of time when people like martin luther king and the kennedys to some extent um and and definitely you know dylan and the beatles and Aretha Franklin and, and so many other peoples tried to push back against the capitalist technocracy that's killing our planet and and just almost turned things around. And it's no coincidence that Malcolm and Martin, you know, and John Lennon and the Kennedys and so many others died at gunpoint. It wasn't an accident, and but there was a there there was just a hint that maybe the whole system could be overthrown peacefully through speech, through politics, and through music, and so that to me makes that era very special. I don't think it really is more important than other eras. It's just fascinating to me. You know, obviously the 1920s were a very important era musically and politically. The 1990s were, and I'm very proud of Generation X uh, and for our contributions to music through hip hop, through, you know, grunge, through uh, uh, Acid House and, and the whole electronic dance music family of genres. I mean, I, I think Gen X definitely has a lot to be proud of. But me personally, when I really want to, the stuff I've spent literal years obsessing over one album there was even six months i obsessed over one song 
it's been 60s stuff and and that's that's the stuff where i know the good bands the bad bands the mediocre bands and know them well where i've put in the hours to listen to like every hit song from 1963 where i have a playlist from 1967 and 1500 songs that i'm deeply familiar with so that's 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 my jam but a big part of the let it roll project has been trying to break down my personal musical obsessions and broaden the horizon and see the bigger trends but let's play our next track and this is uh saturday night fish fry by louis jordan and this is a guy before i did the letter the initial let it roll series with ed ward i'd heard of him i knew it was important his picture was always in the rock and roll you know the rolling stone history of rock and roll books but i'd never really listened to him and my god this guy was so effing great and so dominant there were years in the 40s when he was number one on what was just beginning to be called the r&b charts more often than he wasn't i mean i'm talking like he was number one on the charts 47 out of 52 weeks plus he was frequently on the pop charts this guy was absolutely the king and it drives me crazy that he is not seen as the peer of louis armstrong and duke ellington and hank williams and bob dylan and woody guthrie and all these other you know aretha franklin all these other you know, patriarchs and matriarchs of American music because Louis Jordan is the shit. And here's Saturday Night Fish Fry, one of its greatest. Now, if you ever been down to New Orleans, then you can understand just what I mean. Now, all through the week, it's quiet as a mouse, but on Saturday night, they go from house to house. You don't have to pay the usual admission if you're a cook or a waiter or a good musician. So if you happen to be just passing by, stop in at the Saturday Night Fish Fry. It was rocking. It was rocking. You never see such scuffling and shuffling until the break of dawn. And that was Saturday Night Fish Fry by Louis Jordan. And again, you know, Louis Jordan, I think, has been diminished because... He's basically cousin, musical cousins with Charlie Parker. In the 30s, they were both playing with swing bands. They both played at the Savoy Ballroom. We've talked about that on the Chick Webb Chick Web episodes. But this is the great giant ballroom where thousands of people would dance. They'd have two bandstands. You know, one night they had Benny Goodman band against Chick Webb. They had Chick Webb take on Duke Ellington. They had Chick Webb take on Count Basie. The only one Chick couldn't beat was Duke Ellington, by the way. I mean, he smoked everybody else. But Louis Jordan was on stage with Chick Webb for half of those. And Charlie Parker played those, that same dance hall with um, Jay McShann, I believe, was was the swing band he was in. And he won. Charlie Parker, the great bebop genius, his band won the dance contest. So in the 30s, these guys were both killer swing saxophonists. But... In the 40s, they went in totally different directions. Charlie Parker becomes, creates bebop along with Dizzy Gillespie. And they almost had a chance, I think, to become a dominant music form. I think had the recording strike not been going on, had their alliance with Cuban, Afro-Cuban musicians t- taken hold, had they been able to record with China Paza and others earlier, that stuff might have blown up and might have become the dominant music, but because of World War II and all the different strikes and shortages, that stuff didn't get put out. The formative years of bebop didn't get put out, and by the time it was recorded, it was art music that was for sitting down in small clubs and really paying attention and listening to the ideas of these musicians in the way that you would listen to a Beethoven piece or a Wagner piece, you know, and, and a big part of the story is what, what ideas are they wrestling with, but also their expression, emotion, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, the critics loved Charlie Parker and they didn't like Louis Jordan. And the other thing against him was that Louis Jordan was really fun and funny. And because of America's hideous evil history, because of blackface minstrelsy and, and, you know, cooning and buffoonery and everything that there's always and also just it's something it's not even just with the racial aspect i mean why is there no best best comedy award at the oscars america really denigrates comedy maybe it does have to do with minstrelsy but all all american comedians are diminished by this so louis jordan was fun and funny and danceable and his music was 
for the moment and for hits. And it wasn't something that, you know, Clint Eastwood never went back and made a movie about Louis Jordan the way he made a movie about Charlie Parker. I mean, you didn't have a whole generation of, of middle-brow Americans worshiping Louis Jordan the way he did uh, Charlie Parker. But anyway, Louis Jordan deserves his props, and uh, I'm giving them to him. So um, next question. The most important performers from these genres, uh, country. So um, I would say the first and most important artist in country is Vernon Dalhart, who had the first million-selling country record, The Prisoner's Song. And he's, again, totally undersung and more or less been written out of history because he's perceived as not being authentic because he's an operatic trained singer. He was also from Jefferson, Texas. Like His country roots were as real as anybody's. He had definite... Uh, experience with minstrelsy performance, had plenty of exposure to early blues and barrel house piano in East Texas, but he was an operatic guy. And the ugly reality that a lot of country people don't want to deal with is that tradition of country has never gone away. That uh, whether you know it's Eddie Arnold or Kenny Rogers, there's always been this pop old style, not always opera influenced, but I mean, frequently look at Slim Whitman, but but there's all you know the Vernon Dalhart strain of country has never even been diminished, much less you know gone away and come back. It's always been one of the two dominant streams of country. Of course, this leads us to the people that you know you would normally say Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family are the beginning of country music, and in a way they were, and I'd argue they're the the beginnings of African. American influenced country music. I mean, Jimmy Rogers was a blues man as much as he was a country singer. Uh, I'd say he was one of the great blues men. Um, and then you come to the Carter family, which at first glance seems to be less African American influenced than Jimmy Rogers, but Leslie Riddle was right there teaching Sarah Carter, I mean, Mabel Carter, how to play uh, guitar song hunting and songwriting with AP Carter. They, you know, the Carter family basically had a fourth member and he was a black dude. That that's, that's, that's the facts. Um, uh, you know, and then again, Bill Monroe, the father of bluegrass obviously belongs on this list, but with Bill Monroe, you've got Arnold Schultz right there, this black guy who taught him maybe not everything he knew, but a whole heck of a lot. So this, this is, this is the other uh, tradition. And then from there, I would say that, uh, Bob Wills, Maybe not the inventor. Milton Brown invented Western Swing, but Bob Wills was right there with him and behind him and became the king of Western Swing, which is this amazing amalgam of country and the dominant pop music of the era, Swing. And so just immensely influential, uh, made country a dance music uh, you know, the dominant form of Texas music. Nobody's more influential on Texas music than Bob Wills, I would say. And then, and then, uh, Hank Williams as kind of the apotheosis of, of country, uh, the hillbilly Shakespeare. And there have been other great ones since then, but I, I think that, you know, these are the, the founding figures of the genre and, um, you know, that's what it is with jazz. I would, uh, combine it with American pop and say, well, let's take a sponsor break. When we come back, we'll talk about jazz. Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. All right, now we'll talk about jazz and American pop. And, you know, jazz is a funny genre. And like I said, as it was known in the jazz age in the 1920s, it was a very different music than it's seen retroactively. And there have been a lot of scholars who've done a lot of revisionist history trying to erase the history of 1920 jazz. And I just think that's bullshit. Like what jazz was starts – in New Orleans with Buddy Bolden, but Buddy Bolden never got to record. And so the first jazz records are by a bunch of white guys, the original Dixieland jazz band, which is an ironic name. And, you know, yeah, they got advantages that they shouldn't have because they were white, but they were also from New Orleans. They grew up playing that music. And those records are insane. Uh, those those JDB records are the Sex Pistols of 1917. I mean, this just blows the door off. It's it, uh, the impact of hearing those in 1917. I can only imagine what it's just like hearing uh, Run DMC's first records in the 80s, or or you know, hearing the Sex Pistols in the 70s. This was this was big doings and a big part of their tradition. And somebody like Paul Whiteman was called the King of Jazz. And obviously he wasn't and he's not, but he was very open to jazz. He didn't integrate his bands, but he included the best white jazz musicians of his day, Peter Beck, the trumpet player, Bing Crosby, many others. And he gave George Gershwin, he commissioned Rhapsody in Blue, which is the first time jazz steps up and says, we are going to make an American art music to compete with European music. I mean, obviously that's, they're trying to do it within the European tradition rather than breaking from it the way Duke Ellington would in a little while. But I think people like Paul Whiteman and George Gershwin deserve to be part of that story. So I would start with the whole Irving Berlin, George Gershwin, Ira Gershwin, Cole Porter, uh, that whole family of songwriters, but you got to include the great black songwriters of that period. And they really get undersung with people like U.B. Blake, Fats Waller, Clarence Williams. They wrote just as many songs, just as lasting as the people that we usually think of when we think of the quote, great American songbook. Then I think you got to go with Louis Armstrong, who to me is beyond jazz because he's the first American virtuoso musician. I mean, he's the American France list or, or uh, I forget the name of the great fiddle player from Europe starts with a P. But anyway, Louis was like that. And Louis, I mean, from 1927, even 24, when he makes his first records with King Oliver and others, I mean, he played on Jimmy Rogers records, but suddenly people are paying attention to soloists in pop music that had not happened before. And from the 20s, I think it peaks in the 60s, but continued on longer. I think the tradition's kind of dead now i think that the grateful dead jam band tradition pretty well killed it <laughs> and, and i think jazz fusion played a role in that too and bad drum solos by rock musicians hair metal ironically played a big part in that with all the stupid uh wannabe eddie van halen's in there but from the 20s to the 60s if somebody stepped up to play a solo American audiences wanted to hear that, whether it was Louis Armstrong, Charlie Parker, you know, so many, so many others. Michael Bloomfield as a, as a rock guitarist, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, et cetera, et cetera. There was this this thirst for virtuosity and individuality expressed through music, and Louis Armstrong's the father of that. And here's the kicker: Louis Armstrong's also one of four singers that uh, Gary Giddens defines as the founding fathers and mothers of the American singing style, the modern microphone electronic recording singing style. And we're talking Louis Armstrong, Bing Crosby, Bessie Smith, and Ethel Waters. Ethel Waters was coming at it from the Broadway tradition, but she's assimilating this new jazz and blues stuff. Bessie Smith is coming at it from the heart of the blues 
And, you know, Bing Crosby's coming at it from basically a pop slash operatic background. I mean, his his root influences are are John McCormick, the great pop opera singer, and Al Jolson, who's maybe I should have put on this list. I, I would put Burt Williams and Al Jolson on this list as the, as the fathers of Broadway music. Um, Al Jolson gets a lot of bad raps and you know, he wore blackface, so that's too bad. Sorry, Al. But Bing Crosby is a whole different kettle of fish. When Louis Armstrong would say, you know, who's the greatest musician alive, he would say Bing Crosby. When Bing Crosby would ask who's the greatest musician alive, he would say Louis Armstrong. They were not kidding around. That was not light talk. They were dead serious. They were peers, musical peers, and that's a big deal. Um, then you got to include the blues tradition. I would go a little different and say that like Blind Lemon Jefferson and Lonnie Johnson and, of course, the great female blues singers and W.C. Handy. You got to go with W.C. Handy, the father of the blues, the guy who copyrighted the first blues song. He's His reputation is much diminished, but I think it deserves um, – you know, a rebuffing. Then you get into the swing era. I would throw out uh, Duke Ellington, Chick Webb, Count Basie, and Benny Goodman. I, I think I think Benny Goodman earned earned his stripes there, and, and Artie Shaw too. And then when you get to Artie Shaw, you get to this whole other tradition where it wasn't just Ch- Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie inventing bebop. So they're on this list for that and making jazz and art music. On the other side, from the vocal side, this jazz pop tradition also becomes art music, and that's led by Artie Shaw, who stopped doing contemporary hits and wanted to do the best songs and started doing songs that were five years old, 10 years old, when people did not do that. That's why we have the Great American Songbook. It's because people like Artie Shaw, Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughn, Billie Holiday picked these songs and said, yeah, I know this is 10, 15 years old. I'm going to do a killer new version and blow your mind with a whole interpretation you never saw coming. And so I see that those people as the progenitors of this tradition. And then there's the folk tradition. I got to go with Woody Guthrie and Lead Belly. And folk is something I've struggled with. It's a really weird tradition because it's taking the music of the folk into the colleges and the bourgeois uh you know, gathering places and the labor movement and stuff. And so it's this, it's this artificial intellectualized style, but there was nothing artificial or intellectualized about what he got through or lead belly that they were bringing the real deal to people like Pete Seeger and the Weavers and others. And, and, you know, going to have Bob Dylan and all that. And then Latin music again, that is is a whole nother island that I'm still doing my research. I'm begging Ned Sublet to come back. And if I can't get him to come back to finish the series, the Latin rule series, I'll get somebody else. Um, but but Latin is a big, big, big deal. It's the most direct pipeline to sub-Saharan African music. It's the source of so many, much rhythmic invention, such a massive influence on every era of African-American influenced music. So it's not a sideshow. It's it's absolutely, I think, a third uh, factor in the mainstream. But let's go ahead and hear uh, some some of the music that that makes this list. And I would say Jimi Hendrix is one of the great innovators. And this is Jimi Hendrix, Manic Depression. And that was Jimi Hendrix's Manic Depression. I mean, the man was both the apotheosis, the Elvis of rock. Sorry, Mick Jagger. Sorry, John Lennon. Sorry, Bob Dylan. It was Jimmy. Jimmy was the guy uh, who personified rock music and also then helped invent the next thing, which was heavy rock and jazz fusion that came out of that too. So, so he's both, you know, absolutely the king of his movement moment and a visionary who pointed the way forward for many musicians to explore in many directions. But that brings us to the whole rhythm and blues and rock and roll. And like I said, there's two eras of this, you know, I would say, uh, 
Louis Jordan is just such a dominant figure in R and B. I mean, there's there's plenty of others that are that are noteworthy. Nat King Cole, uh, Illinois Jacket. I mean, um, Lionel Hampton is one of these guys that ride on that verge from swing to R and B. But Louis Jordan is the guy. And then you've got, you know, a, a second generation like Winoni Harris or Roy Brown that that they were known as rock and roll in their time and kind of were seen as the new thing following Louis Jordan. And they had a good, you know, three, four, five year run. But then they got steamrollered by this avalanche led by Little Richard and Chuck Berry and Elvis Presley and Jerry Lee Lewis and Bo Diddley. And, and rock and roll was here. And it was this climactic explosive moment um in american history and i think it's no coincidence that almost every one of those guys was taken out one way or the other whether it was converting to christianity or marrying your cousin and becoming a disgrace or going to jail for for statutory rape and violating the man act like chuck berry did or straight up getting killed uh you know uh, the, and there was a lot of artists that, that straight up got killed that we hardly got to hear of, um, you know. But there's also people like Eddie Cochran and and Gene Vincent that are and Buddy Holly and R- Richie Valens and all those that, that died in plane crashes, etc. Car crashes, motorcycle crashes. Then there's the rock and soul era, which I see as different from from R and B. And to me. Motown, Barry Gordy is absolutely the heavyweight champion of this. I mean, nobody's accomplishment even comes close. It's a meta accomplishment in that, you know, as a songwriter, he's pretty important. Uh, you know, he wrote "Do You Love Me," "Money," or co-wrote uh, co-wrote most of the Jackson Five hits. So he's a, I, I think of him as one of the great punk songwriters. Uh, ironically, most people won't see that, but the dude wrote "Money" and he wrote "Do You Want to Dance?" And then in '69, '70, he's right at the forefront of the bubblegum scene, which is absolutely a, a strain of punk. But Motown contained multitudes, and and Barry had the unique gift to bring in other people like him, songwriter producers who were more talented and greater, Smokey Robinson, Holland Dozier Holland, Mickey Stevenson, Norman Whitfield, so many creative talents bringing the Funk Brothers together to play these songs, finding people like Marvin Gaye and Diana Ross and the Supremes to sing these songs. I mean, just made the American industrial system work for music like nobody ever has. So, you know, Motown's top uh, of the rock soul era, but but also the Beatles are right up there because the the level of fame that they I think they possibly were the most famous people that are ever going to live in human history. I mean, even Alexander the Great didn't have you know, satellite broadcasts to bring him to 7 billion people or 5 billion, 4 billion people, whatever the population was in 1967. I mean, you know, 73 million people watched the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and you know, how many of them had their lives changed by that? A lot. So the Beatles are an immensely big deal. And I think their music has clearly shown staying power. Like John Higgs said when he was on the show a couple of months ago, kids know the Beatles in a way they don't know the Stones. They don't know the Kinks. They don't know the Who. They don't know Bob Dylan. They don't know James Brown. They don't know Motown. They know the Beatles. So the Beatles might have the shot to be kind of a Shakespeare if civilization lasts any length of time, um, you know, I think the Beatles are going to be remembered and heard and sung. But let's go uh, with one more uh, of my favorites that cap the 20th century. This is Outcast, Bombs Over Baghdad, where they incorporate the influences of drum and bass and jungle and 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 the the stuff that was going on in England and Europe around the world they steal that stuff bring it into hip hop and prove once again that the american the human voice is the 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 checkmate move that that if you've got great music and people can dance to it that's a great thing that's powerful you can make art music with it you can make dance music but if you put voices on it You've got popular music, and goddamn bombs over Baghdad is just the greatest. Two, one, two, three. Yeah, it's from national underground, thunder pounds, and I stop the ground. Like a million elephants, a silverback, orangutans, you can't stop a train. Who wants up? Don't come unprepared. I'll be there, but when I leave there, better be a household name. Brother man telling us it ain't gonna rain. So now we sit in a drop top soaking wet. In a silk suit, trying not to sweat. Hit some assaults without the net. But this be the year that we won't forget. One, nine, nine, nine. Too hot to jump in jail. Too low to dig, I might just touch hell. Hot 
And that was Outcast with Bombs Over Baghdad, where they just frankly stole the throne uh, away from e- from uh, Electronica as it was being marketed at the time, and 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 kicked off hip hop's absolute dominance of of pop in the in the the noughties, the two thousands. Um, just just absolutely epic epic stuff. But let me let me run through a few more genres and name some favorites. But I mean, you know, if you're going to talk about the rock era, you've obviously got to include James Brown. Uh, Aretha Franklin. I should have included Ray Charles in, in my original rock and roll era, but he, he's a little different, kind of the forefather of soul. You got to include the whole Stax Records gang, Otis Redding, Sam and Dave, uh, Booker T and the MGs. Uh, you got to talk about the birds and the mamas and the papas and the whole folk rock thing. You got to talk about the San Francisco scene with the airplane and the dead. Um, and then and then to me, the next phase is heavy rock, hard rock, which kind of starts with the Velvet Underground in some ways, but primarily it's Hendrix, Cream, Jeff Beck, Led Zeppelin, and then and then by the time you get to Black Sabbath, you've got fully formed heavy metal. And then the next genre I would hit would be uh, hip-hop. I think the holy trinity of Grandmaster Flash, DJ Cool Herc, and Africa Bambata, you've got to give your respect to Grandmaster Flash is the only one of those that really put together a recorded body of work. Bambata had his hits, but but not as many as Flash did. Although Flash never got to record what he sounded what they sounded like live. So that's a big loss. And that that whole, you know, Curtis Blow Houdini era is important, but I don't think they produced a great artist of that magnitude. Kind of a, a frustration. Uh, ideally, Grandmaster Flash would have gotten to record what he sounded like at his peak with the Furious Five live and done whole albums that way, but that wasn't possible. So it's Run DMC that gets to do that, even though it's a new era and a new style. Run DMC, absolutely the Beatles of hip hop. And then you get, you know, Public Enemy, Eric B and Rakim, Marley Marl, that that next wave that, that, that really drove the golden age of hip hop. Boogie Down Productions, et cetera, et cetera. Then you got the Native Tongues movement with De La Soul and 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 uh, uh, Tribe Called Quest, et cetera. Then you've got the gangster rap movement with N.W.A., Ice Cube, Dr. Dre, et cetera. Then that leads to Biggie and Tupac's era, and then you know Jay Z and the, the uh, various uh, you know sort of <laughs> the shiny suit era. Um, but then then you get Outkast and the Dirty South, and that's when hip hop really dominates. And then you see hip hop evolve into this art music with people like Jay Dilla and DJ Screw, whose ideas were so far ahead of their time that that youngsters are still grappling with this stuff like it's fresh today. Uh, so that's you know a quick run through of the great men of of, of hip hop, and obviously it should have included some women in there as well, but. And then punk was the next genre uh, I was asked about. To me, Lenny K and the Nuggets compilation is where punk starts. And punk is not a 70s genre. Punk is a 60s genre. It's part of the original rock explosion. It was just done by bands like The Seeds, The Leaves, The 13th Floor Elevators, who might have had one hit, if that. But once Lenny K put that together in a double album, it made a case that this was a distinct subgenre of rock and it was great. And then people, um, the Ramones, the Sex Pistols, the Clash, et cetera, you know, codify it. Uh, and, and you got to include to me David Bowie as kind of the architect of that because he's the guy who said the Velvet Underground is important, the MC5 is important, the New York Dolls are important. And, and kind of, uh, I think between Lenny K and David Bowie, they architected who matters with punk but honestly musically post-punk probably matters a whole lot more than punk and you got to go with joy division there um and you know including new order and and that's if I'll, I'll just stop with that and then the next question is what one hit wonder would you have wanted to hear more from and there's a guy named jesse belvin he's best known for co-writing earth angel although i don't believe he recorded it with um the penguins but he uh was one of the great lost talents he was uh, a contemporary of sam cook and jackie wilson and that whole great you know church raised R&B come soul singer generation and Jesse's one of these guys who 
toward the south and didn't make it home. He he got killed officially because of a blown out tire in Arkansas, but people that were there that night say that, you know, they were being harassed, they were being followed, they were being shot at. And so Jesse might have just called got murdered by a bunch of racist uh, crackers in the South. And uh, he's one of many people um, that I think had a lot more to give. And so if I have to pick one name, that would be that would be the one. I'm going to do a couple more questions. Uh, what do you think has been the most important musical instrument in history? I don't think there's any one most important musical instrument in history, but I do believe that there have been dominant instruments for different eras. I think obviously the violin dominated um, European music in the 17th, 18th, and the piano too, uh, 17th, 18th, 19th century. And uh, also, you know, if you were in 19th century America in the country, hearing a black string band playing what you would now think of as country music, they were playing fiddles. Fiddles were the top instrument of the 19th century. But then they get superseded by the saxophone. And this is something I want to research more um, in the drum kit as well. But there was a moment when classical music almost assimilated the saxophone. There was a period of time when a few major writers start writing for the saxophone, trying to put saxophones into symphony orchestras. And it was rejected through a mix of kind of national politics. I think the French didn't like it because it was German or the Germans didn't like it was French. Again, I need to read the books and do the research, but that was a really key moment. And that was one of the things that let jazz take over uh, for the European classical tradition was that they passed on the saxophone and the saxophone was the most important instrument in the first half of the 20th century. And then next you get the electric guitar, which from Sister Rosetta Tharp, uh, I mean, you know, all the way through Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, et cetera, et cetera, leads to Jimi Hendrix, leads to heavy metal, et cetera, et cetera, has, you know, this incredible 30, 40 year run. And then the next instrument is turntables. I mean, this is something I was oblivious to at the time and, and only learned recently when I went back and researched it. But from, you know, Francis Grasso, uh, playing, uh, you know, mixing Chicago and Led Zeppelin and Sly Stone and, and James Brown records together in the clubs in New York, that was turning the turntable in, in, into an instrument. And from there, it's not long until people like Grandmaster Flash and Grand Wizard Theodore are invent scratching and turntablism and everything. But you can see from the whole genres of hip hop and the greater electronic music, disco, house, uh, techno tradition, whatever you want to call it, um, that that was a rich vein. And so I would say the turntable is the most important instrument from the 70s through the 90s, and with the sampler coming on in the 80s and 90s. And I think the sampler was robbed of its rightful place um, because of really stupid, evil court rulings that that basically ruled that something like uh it takes a nation of millions to hold us back by public enemy or three feet high and rising by devil's soul were not art that did not have value to be protected and so those creators were given no benefit of the doubt and and i don't want to bag on the turtles or gilbert o'sullivan or whatever but give me a fucking break you know people are going to be listening to public enemy long after they've forgotten the fucking turtles and Gil gilbert o'sullivan Sorry, dude. You, nobody's going to give a shit about you. And and I I don't even believe that lasting is the most important thing. I mean, I think somebody who makes a record or a song that that epitomizes their moment, that you know, like uh, Oh Susanna in 1849, you know, that's as important as lasting. That's that's also an expression of power. But a lot of times, there's records or songs that don't make that overwhelming impression initially, but then continue to last and last. And that's another expression of power. And clearly, you know, these great records that were made with samplers and, and that, that, that was cut off uh, in its infancy in the early nineties. And I'm still extremely bitter about that. And from there, then I would have to say it's been, you know, it's been PCs and Macs and pro tools and all that stuff and auto tune. I think auto tune is probably the most important instrument of the 21st century. And some people might laugh at that, but um, you know, I, I, I think uh, listen to the episodes we've done about vocal psychedelia with Kit McIntosh. And uh, this is, this is the merge 
merger of the human and the machine. And that's that seems to be one of the most exciting things going on right now. And then I'll answer, I guess, uh, two more questions, but I'll answer them briefly. Um, if you could bring back a performer from the dead to play your birthday, who would it be? Nobody. I've seen that. I've read The Monkey's Paw. I am not doing that. Like the last thing I would ever want to do is summon Brian Jones back from the death, dead, <laughs> to play for me. I, I think... <laughs> I would want no part of that. That guy uh, is burning in hell for his own sins. I'm not going to bring him here to um, to add to that, even even if he might be my favorite musician. Um, but yeah, no, Ryan, you can stay dead. Thank you very much. And and you too, John Lennon, you too, Beethoven, all of you. You had your time. Y'all stay where y'all are. I'll stay where I am until it's time to join you. Um, maybe or whatever. And then last couple questions how did you growing up in a predominantly country-centric park of texas become a member of a punk band well the texas panhandle in 1970s was not predominantly country-centric most of the most of the radio stations were playing uh pop and rock all the dudes were playing rock records it was very racist uh time not explicitly so but i mean it's just like and we've talked about this on the show many times but in the 70s music resegregated itself and in all kinds of weird ways. And so, you know, I wasn't hearing like a lot of Stevie wonder. I would hear Stevie wonder on the radio occasionally, but not as much as you should have. And you definitely didn't see, you know, the great black rock records in the collections of people who consider themselves pretty serious music heads. I mean, I knew a couple of music heads who had respectable black presences in their collection but you would have a lot of people who are just blind to it just so bands like the isley brothers or p parliament funkadelic that any 70s rock fan should love i mean you know you can play p funk you can play a set with grand funk railroad kiss p funk isley brothers led zeppelin no problem throwing some slides down it, it, you can you can jam that shit any crowd will go for it all and it was artificially segregated but the point is, country was seen as hick, as for Hicks, even in the Texas panhandle. Yeah, we heard it all the time. Yeah, I grew up with it and loved it. And part of me, I, I'm willing to accept my Hick tradition in a way that a lot of the members of my family were not. My mother, for example, who literally picked cotton and um, in the 20, in the 30s and the Depression, she did not consider herself a country person. She liked country and would admit she liked country, but that's not what she she identified herself with Ella Fitzgerald or Mahalia Jackson or the time life classical music thing. Country music was kind of something to be ashamed of. So it wasn't any big deal to become punk. I mean, we had uh, rock and roll high school on HBO in fifth grade, just like every other suburban asshole in Texas. So that was one thing I learned when I came to college that I thought I had been in this culturally benighted backwater. And then I realized, oh, I lived an hour from the mall, just like these assholes from Plano. Like, <laughs> and I actually cared more. They took it all for granted, and we were like sponges, just soaking up all the books and records and movies we could get our hands on. So, and then last question: What do you think of today's music? It's I'm fascinated with it, constantly learning new things. I don't have any pretense that this is my music or that I'm going to be able to pick out, you know, what's the best album or who are the greatest artists. But I love uh, checking into it and dipping in and really enjoyed the, the three Kings of emo punk emo rap series. Sorry. Uh, that I did with Ivan Haas and look forward to, uh, uh, learning more and talking more about it. So that's been let it roll for today. And, uh, I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. And it was a pleasure to do a mailbag. If you want to ask me some questions, be sure and send us an email at let it roll podcast at gmail.com. Follow the Letter Roll podcast on Twitter at Letter Rollcast and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Monday, we'll continue to let Motown roll with a recast of Nate and Brooks Long's discussion of David Ritt's co-written autobiography of the great Rick James. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 